Fritch of Shuan, Understanding Islam, Chapter 2, The Quran. The great theophany of Islam is the Quran. It presents itself as being a discernment, Furqan, between truth and error. In a sense, the whole of the Quran one of the names of which is indeed Al-Furqan, the discernment, is a sort of multiple paraphrase of the fundamental discernment expressed by the Shahada. Its whole content is summed up in the words, Truth has come and error has vanished away. Verily, error is ephemeral. Mm. Quran, chapter 27, verse 73. And Shuan has added after the word error, he's told us that the Arabic of that is al-batil. Truth has come and error, al-batil. And then he translates that as also being the empty or the inconsistent. So I'll just repeat the verse. Truth has come and error, al-batil, the empty or the inconsistent, error has vanished away. Verily, error is ephemeral. Before the message of the Quran is considered, attention must be given to its form and to the principles determining that form. An Arab poet once claimed that he could write a book superior to the Quran, disputing its excellence even from the mere point of view of style. Such a judgment, which is clearly contrary to the traditional thesis of Islam, is explicable in the case of a man who does not know that the excellence of a sacred book is not a priori of a literary order. Many indeed are the texts conveying a spiritual meaning in which logical clarity is joined to powerful language or grace of expression without their having, on this account, a sacred character. That is to say, the sacred scriptures are not such because of the subject of which they treat, or the manner in which they treat it, but by reason of their level of inspiration, or what amounts to the same thing by virtue of their divine provenance. It is this which determines the content of the book, not the converse. Like the Bible, the Quran may speak of very many things other than God. It speaks of the devil, of the holy war, of the laws of succession, and so on. I'm going to continue reading from Fritjof Shuan's Understanding Islam, the chapter on the Quran, page 42. God speaks tersely say the rabbis, and this also explains both the bold ellipses at first sight incomprehensible 
and the superimposed levels of meaning found in the revelations. Moreover, and herein lies a crucial principle, for God the truth lies in the spiritual or social efficacy of the words or the symbol, not in the factual exactitude when this is psychologically inoperative or even harmful. God's first wish is to save rather than instruct, and his concern is with wisdom and immortality, not with outward knowledge, still less with curiosity. Christ called his body the temple, which may seem astonishing when one thinks that this term primarily and to all appearances with better reason designated a stone building. But the stone temple was much less than Christ, the receptacle of the living God, given that Christ had come, and in reality the term temple applied with far more reason to Christ than to the building made by the hands of men. It can even be said that the temple, whether that of Solomon or that of Herod, was the image of the body of Christ, temporal succession being of no import to God. It is thus that sacred scriptures at times displace words and even facts in function of a higher truth which eludes men. But it is not merely intrinsic difficulties that are found in the revealed books. There is also the matter of their distance in time and the differences in mentality in different periods, or rather the qualitative inequality of the phases of the human cycle. At the origin of a tradition, whether we are speaking of the age of the Rishis or that of Muhammad, the language was different from what it is today. The words were not worn out, and they contained infinitely more than we can divine. Many things which were evident for the reader of earlier times could be passed over in silence, but need to be rendered explicit, not added to, at a later stage. A sacred text with its seeming contradictions and obscurities is in some ways like a mosaic or even an anagram, but it suffices to consult the orthodox, thus divinely guided commentaries, in order to find out with what intention a particular affirmation was made and in what respects it is valid, or what the underlying implications are that enable one to connect elements which at first sight appear incongruous. These commentaries sprang from the oral tradition which from the beginning accompanied the revelation, or else they sprang by inspiration from the same supernatural source. Thus their role is not only to intercalate missing, though implicit, parts of the text, and to specify in what relationship, or in what sense, a given thing should be understood, but also to explain the diverse symbolisms, often simultaneous and superimposed one on another. In short, the commentaries providentially form part of the tradition. They are, as it were, the sap of its continuity even if their committal to writing, or in certain cases their re-manifestation after some interruption, occurred only 
at a relatively late date in order to meet the requirements of a particular historical period. The ink of the learned in the law or in the spirit is like the blood of the martyrs, said the prophet, and this indicates the capital part played in every traditional cosmos by orthodox commentaries. Footnote 8. Jalaluddin Rumi, in the work quoted above, wrote, God Most High does not speak to just any man. Like the kings of this world, he does not speak with any casual fool. He has chosen ministers and deputies. Man accedes to God by going through the intermediaries he has appointed. God Most High has made an election among his creatures in order that a man may come to him by going through him whom he has chosen. End of the quote. This passage, which refers to the prophets, is also applicable to the authorized interpreters of the tradition. End of footnote. According to the Jewish tradition, it is not the literal form of the Holy Scriptures which has the force of law, but solely their orthodox commentaries. The Torah is a closed book and does not surrender itself. It is the sages who open it, for it is in the very nature of the Torah to require from the beginning the commentary of the Mishnah. It is said that the Mishnah was given out in the tabernacle where Joshua transmitted it to the Sanhedrin. By this the Sanhedrin was consecrated and thus instituted by God like the Torah and at the same time. And this is important. The oral commentary which Moses had received on Sinai and tr transmitted to Joshua was in part lost and had to be reconstituted by the sages on the basis of the Torah. This shows very clearly that Gnosis includes both a horizontal and a vertical continuity, or rather that it accompanies the written law in a manner that is both horizontal and continuous, and also vertical and discontinuous. The secrets are passed from hand to hand, but the spark may at any time leap forth on mere contact with the revealed text in connection with a particular human receptacle and the imponderables of the Holy Spirit. It is also said that God gave the Torah during the daytime and the Mishnah by night, and again that the Torah is infinite in itself whereas the Mishnah is inexhaustible through its movement in time. We would add that the Torah is like the ocean which is static and inexhaustible, and the Mishnah like a river which is always in motion. Mutatis, mutandis, all this applies to every revelation and particularly to Islam. There must be authorities for the faith, Iman, and the law, Islam, but there must also be authorities for the path, Ihsan, and these latter authorities are none other than the Sufis and their duly qualified representatives. The logical necessity 
for authorities in this third domain which the theologians of the outward ulama al-zahir are forced to admit though they cannot explain it is one of the proofs of the legitimacy of sufism therefore also of its doctrines and methods as well as of its organizations and masters these considerations concerning the sacred books call for some sort of definition of the epithet sacred itself that is sacred which in the first place is attached to the transcendent order secondly possesses the character of absolute certainty and thirdly eludes the comprehension and control of the ordinary human mind imagine a tree whose leaves having no kind of direct knowledge about the root hold a discussion about whether or not a root exists and what its form is if it does if a voice then came from the root telling them that the root does exist and what its form is that message would be sacred the sacred is the presence of the center in the periphery of the immutable in the moving dignity is essentially an expression of it for in dignity too the center manifests outwardly the heart is revealed in gestures the sacred introduces a quality of the absolute into relativities and confers on perishable things a texture of eternity I'll continue with this reading from Fritjof Schuon's chapter on the Quran from Understanding Islam, page 45. In order to understand the full scope of the Quran, we must take into consideration three things. Its doctrinal content, which we find made explicit in the great canonical treatises of Islam, such as those of Abu Hanifa and at Tahawi, its narrative content, which depicts all the vicissitudes of the soul, and its divine magic, or its mysterious and, in a sense, miraculous power. Footnote 10. Only this power can explain the importance of the recitation of the Quran. In his Risalat al-Quds, Ibn Arabi quotes the case of Sufis who spent their whole life in reading or in ceaselessly reciting the Quran. And this would be inconceivable and even impossible to realize were there not, behind the husk of the literal text, a concrete and active spiritual presence which goes beyond the words and the mind. Moreover, it is by virtue of this power of the Qur'an that certain verses can chase away demons and heal illnesses, at least given the concurrence of certain circumstances. End of the footnote. Back to the text. These sources of metaphysical and eschatological doctrine, of mystical psychology and theurgic power, lie hidden under a veil of breathless utterances, often clashing in shock of crystalline 
and fiery images, but also of passages majestic in rhythm, woven of every fibre of the human condition. Just continuing with Fritjof Schuwan's Understanding Islam, the chapter on the Quran, page 46. But the supernatural character of this book lies not only in its doctrinal content, its psychological and mystical truth, and its transmuting magic. It also appears in its most outward efficacy, in the miracle of the expansion of Islam. The effects of the Quran in space and time bear no relation to the literary impression which the written words may give to a profane reader. Like every sacred scripture, the Quran too is a priori a closed book, though open in another respect, that of the elementary truths of salvation. It is necessary to distinguish in the Quran between the general excellence of the divine word and the particular excellence of a given content which may be superimposed, as, for example, when it is a question of God or of his qualities. It is like the distinction between the excellence of gold and that of some masterpiece made from gold. The masterpiece directly manifests the nobility of gold. Similarly, the nobility of the content of one or another sacred verse expresses the nobility of the Quranic substance, of the divine word, which is in itself undifferentiated. It cannot, however, add to the infinite value of that word. This is also related to the divine magic, the transforming and sometimes theurgic virtue of the divine discourse to which allusion has already been made. This magic is closely linked with the actual language of the revelation, which is Arabic, and so translations are canonically illegitimate and ritually ineffectual. A language is sacred when God has spoken in it, and in order that God should speak in it, it must have certain characteristics, such as are not found in any modern language. Finally, it is essential to understand that after a certain cyclical period and the hardening of the terrestrial ambience which it comprises, God no longer speaks, at least not as revealer. In other words, after a certain period, whatever is put forward as new religion is inevitably false. The Middle Ages mark, grosso modo, the final limit. I'll stop there. There are a few footnotes which um, I'm going to read. 11 after the sentence, A language is sacred when God has spoken in it. Footnote 11. From this the reader might conclude that Aramaic is a sacred language since Christ spoke it spoke it but here there are three reservations which must sorry but here three reservations must be made first in christianity as in buddhism it is the avatara himself who is the revelation so that apart from their doctrine the scriptures have not the central and plenary function which they have in other traditions Secondly, the precise Aramaic words used by Christ have not been preserved. 
which corroborates what has just been said. Thirdly, for Christ himself, Hebrew was the sacred language. Though the Talmud affirms that the angels do not understand Aramaic, this language has nonetheless a particularly high liturgical value. Long before Christ, it was, quote, made sacred by Daniel and Estras. Footnote 12 comes after the sentence, after a certain period, whatever is put forward as new religion is inevitably false. The same can be said of initiatory orders. One can, or rather God can, create a new branch of an ancient lineage or found a congregation of people around a pre-existing initiation. If there is an imperative reason for doing so, and if this type of congregation is within the practices of the tradition in question, but in no circumstance has anyone a right to found a society having, quote, self-realization as its aim. For the simple reason that such a realization is exclusively the province of the traditional organizations. Even if someone sought to incorporate a genuine initiation into the framework of a society or of some kind of spiritual fellowship, thus a profane association, one can be certain that this very framework would wholly paralyze its efficacy and inevitably bring about deviations. Spiritual treasures do not accommodate themselves to just any sort of framework. And finally we have footnote 13, which comes after the sentence, The Middle Ages mark grosso modo the final limit. That is, actually goes back. In other words, after a certain period, whatever is put forward as new religion is inevitably false. The Middle Ages mark, grosso modo, the final limit. So then footnote 13 reads as follows. In fact, Islam is the last world religion. As for the Sikh brotherhood, this is an esoterism analogous to that of Kabir, the special position of which is explained by the quite exceptional conditions arising from the contiguity of Hinduism and Sufism. But here too, it is a case of a final possibility. So I'll stop there.